Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hi, this is Dr. Rob Weiss, and we're going to talk a little bit about healthy sexuality, in this case as it applies to gay men. I think for us to look at homosexuality in a little bit more depth is helpful in terms of looking at sex addiction, because if you are a homosexual or a gay man and you're active in your community, you're really living in an environment that has different sexual norms than does the heterosexual community. It's not unusual for homosexual men to have more partners, to be more frequently hooking up with strangers, and that's normative within the gay or homosexual world. So how do I determine if I were, if I was a sex addict or if I had a compulsive problem with sexuality in a world where they're the norms are so different than they are in the heterosexual world. Uh, another way of thinking about it well, is this. If you're a bartender and you work in a bar and everybody's drinking, it's really hard to tell who the alcoholic is because everybody's drinking. So um, let me give you a little history here. When I entered the field of sexual addiction, sexual compulsivity back in the 90s, we were dealing with the height of the HIV AIDS crisis. And I was watching gay men drop like flies. And I clearly remember when there was no treatment, no help, and we weren't dealing with a chronic physical disorder. We were dealing with a death sentence. And in part, I entered the field as a gay man because I saw that there were some people who were engaging in behaviors that clearly led them to contracting HIV AIDS. And it didn't seem to be that they did, that they wanted to become positive. It wasn't that they were always acting carelessly or that they were even careless people. Some of these people seem to have early life trauma and the intimacy and sexual disorders that follow. In other words, some gay men were having anonymous sex or various kinds of casual sex and not being safe and getting HIV because they're sex addicts. And unfortunately, there were not a lot of people back in the day that could speak to that. And most homosexual men don't really want to listen to heterosexuals telling them what kind of sex they can have and what kind of sex they can't. So I wanted to come forth and talk about in great detail what being a sex addict might mean for a gay man. And by the way, when I use the word gay man, I want to be really clear about this. To me, a homosexual is someone who's oriented to the same sex. But that doesn't necessarily mean they act on it. It doesn't necessarily mean they're living as an out gay person, that they're dating other men or women who they're attracted to. There are homosexuals who are married to heterosexuals and they hide their homosexuality. So when I talk about being a gay man, I'm talking about someone who's out, who's open, who everyone in their life knows that they, what their sexual orientation is. They're not hiding anything. And this is 
the way that they live as an open gay person. So this really is about people who live as gay people, openly gay men, who struggle with sex addiction. Uh, in 2003, I finally got a book out on this topic called Cruise Control, Understanding Sex Addiction in Gay Men. And that was the first book on the topic. It still remains the only book on the topic, and it's a very useful book. But I had to write it again, because between 2003 and now, especially in the gay community, especially in North America, we've got a meth problem, we've got hookup apps like Grindr that didn't exist before, and we have marriage, which has significantly changed the game. So I had to write a second version of Cruise Control in 2013, which I think is pretty current. It'll probably last till 2023 when I get to the 20th anniversary edition. But let me say this, being a gay male who is a sex addict, it's just a difficult thing to identify, a difficult thing to own, and a difficult thing to work past because of the cultural issues that are involved. So let me talk to you first about specific challenges that gay men have in building relationship intimacy. Gay men grow up and have differing cultural experiences and sexual behavior patterns and norms in the heterosexual population. So what I do and what I don't do sexually and who I do it with and who I don't may be very different than the heterosexual population. So there are fewer cultural boundaries for potentially excessive sexual behavior among gay men. There's also a history of a lack of cultural validation for long-term intimacy building. Now, I want you to understand that this is a pretty simple equation. If you tell people for eons that they're sick, that they're broken, that they're insane, that they're institutionalizable or arrestable for loving each other, they're probably not all of a sudden going to know how to love each other just because the law changes. In other words, gay men have intimacy issues that involve uh, a history of discrimination, but also involve men being with men, learning how to love men, which is not the easiest thing in the world. If you grow up with homophobia, if you grow up learning not to cross your legs a certain way, not to hold your wrist a certain way, make sure your S's sound a certain way, make sure nobody knows or could even think that you might be homosexual, then you have learned as an early age how to hide an important part of yourself. Someone who is homosexual but is hiding every evidence of their homosexuality, as you may have to do in certain adolescence and young adult environments, which mean you could be beaten up or ruined if you're out, that nonetheless means that you learn how to have a front-facing self, and because of homophobia, you have a, a part of yourself that other people don't know about. Well, that's a great setup to become an addict. Because addicts, and especially sex addicts, have to learn how to live one life over here and hide the one life over there. Most gay men already know how to do that because they grew up hiding their homosexuality and therefore many of us grew up learning, already understanding how to have a front-facing presentation that really didn't fully show who we are. And that's what addicts do every day of the week. Another issue related to homosexuality, gay life, is what I would call extended adolescence. That you must understand that most gay men don't get to date or take a prom date to the dance in high school. Most gay men aren't dating, holding hands, going out on dates, you know, double date. That doesn't happen in high school for most of us. So what does happen is we often repress our sexuality or hide our sexuality. And then when we get to dating and mating and really being out about it, well, we're already in our 20s. Whereas your average heterosexual had started dating or being sexual or whatever at 15, 16, 17, 18. So we have a, a delayed adolescence. We are often exploring sexually into our 20s, relationships, dating, and intimacy because we didn't have the opportunity to do that at a younger age. Unfortunately, in the gay world, there aren't a lot of role models for healthy, long-term dating, intimacy, and relationship building. And it's a kind of a true, commonly known expression that 
when people get married or get in a committed relationship, they leave the community. Meaning, if you're the guy who hangs out at the bar, if you're the guy that goes out dancing, if you're the guy that goes on the hiking group、um, with your other gay single friends, when you get married or in a committed relationship, when you might be able to become that role model, we go off with our partners and we disappear. We leave the community and we join the community of people who are in partnership, and so therefore, younger men don't necessarily get to see the role modeling of what a healthy coupleship or long-term committed relationship looks like, because those of us who are in them aren't hanging out in bars or going to the same clubs or environments that they're going to. I think it's important to say, and people don't say this enough, but I have a strong belief about it. It's harder to be in a male-male relationship than in a male-female relationship. Because when you're when you have women in a relationship, they will tend to understand that men have egos. Men kind of want to go first. Men kind of want to have their say. Men kind of want to have the answer, and women put up with that. You know, they will defer to us. They'll let us go first. I mean, they may think we're fools, but they'll let us go first because they understand how we are in that way. And and there's a good give and take in heterosexual relationships often around that. But when you have two men in a relationship, well, men naturally compete. Men naturally want to one-up each other. Men naturally want to kind of be right or have the answer, and that doesn't necessarily produce the kind of empathy, compassion, listening skills, and connection that a male-female relationship might produce. So, it, if two men are going to be together, they have to learn the skills of empathy, compassion, nurturing, giving in, supporting the other, and things that don't naturally, don't always naturally come to two men when they're together. By the way. If two men have difficulty building intimacy, guess what? Two women often struggle with, and indeed, lesbians often struggle with enmeshment. They have the opposite problem. They too quickly get together. They too quickly become all caught up in each other's business, and before you know it, they're not having sex anymore, and they're just friends.、Um, on the other hand, you have two men who will bang into each other's heads for a while, and then they'll just say, "Oh, well, I'll never figure out, figure out this love thing," and they don't. So lesbians, just to say it, need help with individuation in relationship, and men need help with affiliation in relationship when they're together. And also, you must remember that homosexuals have not had the two or three thousand years of relationship building experiences and skills that heterosexuals have had the gift to be able to have, because homosexuality has never really been acceptable. Being a gay man or a gay woman means you live in a subculture that has been exposed to extensive. Cultural, legal, religious oppression, directly related to your sexuality, to what you find interesting, romantic, sexually, and sexual attraction. So, if you're demeaned and you're devalued, or you hear demeaning and devalued things said about what turns you on and who turns you on for all of your life, you are going to struggle with issues related to homophobia yourself. You're going to internalize some of that stuff. And I can tell you, I see couples where、uh, I've heard of a couple, for example, a friend told me. That they were, he was sitting in the back seat of a car with a couple, and one man reached over to kiss his partner. His partner pulled away. Oh my God! Someone's going to see us. How can we kiss in public? Well, that partner was from a part of the country that was very homophobic. His lover, who reached out to kiss him, was from California. And so, in California, a couple of men kissing might seem like you know a nice date.、Uh, in Arkansas, it might seem like a reason to get beaten up. And so, different men in different stages and different situations of life and different levels of their maturity are going to respond to their internalized homophobia always in some way or another. And I can tell you,、uh, it doesn't end at thirty, it doesn't end at forty, it doesn't end at fifty. Those messages live within gay people for a very long time. I think that there is something that we often don't think about that is worth mentioning here. There is an under-acknowledged specter of AIDS-related death that pepper and salts the gay community for the last forty years. You can't deny it. You can't avoid it. You know, in America, we still talk about Vietnam as if it just happened, and in Vietnam, we lost fifty-two thousand men. 
We don't talk about AIDS or HIV very much, but we lost almost 350,000 people to HIV AIDS during the eight or 10 year period before we got medication. So when I look at the cultural response in America to Vietnam, for example, and the way we still do documentaries about it and talk about it endlessly and look at how it affected our government, 52,000 people died there. But we don't have documentaries and endless groups and discussions and cultural relationship issues come up around HIV AIDS, even though 350,000 people died. It's like it never happened. And that, unfortunately, is something that gay men live with every day, especially if you're an older gay man, because older gay men watch their friends die. Older gay men watch their lovers die. Older gay men thought they were going to die. And they live with that for the rest of their lives. They'll never forget. You may question me about what are the similarities between gay men and and straight men when it comes to sex addiction. And I would tell you that there's a lot. Because before any gay man is gay, he's a man first. And men share common characteristics around how we view sexuality, relationships, and intimacy. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. So the underlying emotional relationship and social deficits, the traumas that drive straight men to act out sexually are exactly the same in gay men as they are in straight men. Some have sexual trauma, some have neglect, some have abuse. Gay men certainly have that extra layer of cultural and social abuse, but it all adds up to the same thing if you're an addict, that hole in the soul that never gets filled up and you're always running looking for a rescue emotionally. It doesn't matter whether you're a gay man or a straight man, the feelings before, during, and after sexually acting out are going to be the same. Both gay men and straight men struggle with intimacy, self-regulation, and social engagement because if they're addicts, they share those issues. The differences really are cultural and genetic. But you have to remember that gay men are competing for the attention of other men, and men are visually oriented. We are all about how someone looks and what and, and, you know, we're very sensitive and attracted to the look, the body shape, the body type. You know, we're like men are visual. So think about all of the struggles that women go through wanting to be desirable to a man. And you have to understand that those are the same issues that a gay man goes through because we too are competing for male attention. And men who are, who are looking for someone, whether it's a woman or a man, they want the right body, the right hair, the right size, the right... So it's not unusual for gay men to have body dysmorphic issues, eating disorder issues, um, spending too much time at the gym or in plastic surgery, all of that stuff because they too want to be in relationship with a man. You already know what women go through to try to make themselves attractive to a man if that's their desire. Well, Well, gay men are stuck in the same struggle. Another thing that you might think is different is where gay men and straight men go looking for sex as sex addicts. So look at how this compares. Straight men have paid webcam sex and gay men have paid webcam sex and online hookups and and gay men hook up on Grindr and straight men hook up on Ashley and gay men go to bathhouses and straight men go to strip clubs and both have escort services and massage. Gay men go to public sex and anonymous sex, and straight men go pick up people in bars, and both go to clubs and bars. Gay men go to adult bookstores, straight men go to adult bookstores. Gay men travel and have one-night stands, straight men travel and have one-night stands. 
And sometimes they have sex with each other. If you look at the film Shame with Michael Fassbender, one of the things you'll see is a man who is absolutely heterosexual and committed to being sexual with women, but when he's out on a run looking for sex desperately after being beaten up by somebody and he's just a mess, he doesn't care who he's with. He doesn't get into the club that where the women are. He just goes to the club where the men are. Because for a sex addict, it's just about releasing that tension, getting off, being in that intensity, and it can get to a point where it doesn't matter who you're having sex with as long as you're having it. Now, as we've talked about, the gay game changer was Grinder, And what I wanted to say to you about it was how gay men used to meet up for sex before Grinder. It wasn't unusual for gay men to be meeting in really icky places to find each other for sex. Restrooms, parks, bathhouses, truck stops, you know. And you'd say to yourself, well, what is wrong with these men that they go to all these awful places to meet? In order to answer that question, I have to ask you to think about what do you do if the person that you're attracted to and love is someone you're not allowed to hold hands with, kiss, or dance with in a public place. If that is the case, as it was at least in America through the mid-1970s, where was a man going to meet another man? Where was a man going to kiss another man, except in a dark, hidden place where he hoped against hope that a police officer wouldn't be there to arrest him, or somebody in his family wouldn't find out which meant he could be institutionalized? So, of course, gay men sought out hidden, dark, places where they could go be sexual. And let's not forget that it wasn't unusual for a man of the 50s or 60s into the 70s to be married because that was the only way to have a healthy uh, life that everyone would accept. And yet he would go off and have gay sex because he really was a homosexual, which meant that your married man had to go to a hidden place to be sexual so his wife and family wouldn't find out. So we have many, many reasons why men used to go to those places for sex. Grinder has been actually the game changer in a good way because it's taken men out of all those dark alleys and, and arrestable places and put them on the same dating and relationship ground as heterosexuals because heterosexuals use Tinder and gay men use Grinder and, you know, everybody uses another app. So really now, in fact, in some ways, there's not even a reason for a gay bar because if I'm a heterosexual person and you're a homosexual person, we can go dance, we can go hang out. And then when we're looking for someone, if we want to get laid, you can pick up your app and I'll pick up my app and we'll find who we're looking for, but we can still go to the same place to have fun together. So the apps have really, especially in the gay world, been a great equalizer and actually provided a lot of safety in ways that it didn't exist before. You're not going to get arrested hooking up with someone on an app. Now, I do want to mention one of the biggest problems in the gay community, which is a problem related to chemsex. We haven't talked much about chemsex in this series, and we probably won't spend a lot of time with it. But chemsex is the combination of methamphetamine or cocaine with sexuality and sexual behavior. And back in the days before we had Cialis and Viagra and all those pills that give you an erection for many hours, men didn't really use stimulants and engage in sex because stimulants are a bit of a softy for men. They don't quite do it for us. We have a lot of fun, but we don't get hard. However... If you're taking a drug that leaves you up for days emotionally, like meth or a lot of coke, and then now you have these little pills that will give you an erection for days at a time, now you can be up for days and up for days. And that's a problem for some people because they lose control over the multiple days that they're having sexual experiences and they're high. It's not infrequent for them to end up being psychotic and engaging in all kinds of crazy sexual behavior because they've not been sleeping or eating or all of that. And it is a big problem. The number two second leading problem uh, in addiction in America after opioid addiction is chemsex. And let me explain to you what one gentleman had to say about it. This gentleman named Philip, who I saw at 29 years old for the first time, said this to me. He said, half the guys I meet online end up offering me Tina, 
crystal meth. And then we usually spend the weekend watching porn or having sex with other men who show up. If I'm too high to get it up or keep it up, I always have Viagra or medications like it around, or I can get it in a one-day supply on the internet. Out of the bars, there's a constant supply of drugs. And when I do that, well, then I, I, I often end up in the sex clubs until after the sun comes up. He said to me, I wouldn't know where to begin dealing with my sexual acting out since the whole problem seems so tied together with my drug use, partying, and my social life. It always has all one thing. And for the chem sex addicts, it's really a lot of work picking apart the pieces that belong to the sex, the pieces that belong to the drugs, and working with the whole thing. A little bit more about chemsex. Stimulant abuse and addiction, or meth abuse, is the number one type of substance abuse disorder in gay men behind alcohol addiction. Stimulant abuse and addiction is most likely to lead to HIV infection, physical abuse, sexual abuse, jail, institutions, and death. Most sex environments offer readily available stimulants that are combined with Viagra and related drugs which turn into a three or four day sexual marathon for the participants. Recovery from meth and sex addiction is long and challenging. It's an anhedonic road. It's an anhedonic road. You're not going to be happy with it, meaning there's no pleasure there. Once somebody stops, all of that sexual and drug intensity seeking, they're not going to have pleasure in very much for a long time. And it's the nature of the, of the chemistry of methamphetamine that it kills the dopamine receptors in the brain. So we are literally unable to experience joy after using meth for more than a couple of weeks. And that inability to experience joy can go on for as long as a year. And unlike someone who's doing opioids who can perhaps use Suboxone or Methadone or other medications to help them detox and step off of that Methadone, there is nothing to help somebody with the misery of stopping speed and having nothing to make them feel better. They're just miserable for a really long time. And thus, we see a lot of relapse in um, meth and sex clients. So a few things about differences in treating gay male sex addicts. Number one, you need to, go to, the, you need to know the lingo. You know, what is party and play? What are, and I'm not going to throw out another, a bunch of words here, but what are all the words and the language and the literature? What, what makes a gay man feel comfortable when you're meeting with him that he understands you? Your male clients are probably going to need to learn about male intimacy, not just sexual and romantic intimacy, but they too will need to bond with a peer group in order to get well. When you're working with gay men, you need to be prepared for and prepared to not pathologize large numbers of sexual partners, like someone saw 50 people in the last month or 100. It's not unusual because men can have very casual sex in anonymous places in five minutes. And if you're having sex three times a week for five minutes at a time, you're still having three sexual partners a week. And if you add that up over a year or two, that's a lot of people. It's important to understand how and accept really how men think about casual sex versus how women think about casual sex because gay men are not really that different than straight men, meaning that gay men are just as capable of objectifying sexual experiences and having them without any emotional connection whatsoever. Just like a straight guy can go off and go to a strip club uh, uh, and not really think that affects his relationship, a gay guy can go off to have a casual sexual experience and really not feel like it means a whole lot to him because men are readily able to separate sex and relationship. Not all of us, but it's a pretty good skill set for the majority of men. You need to have some insight into gay culture because you're not going to just be talking to someone about pathology. You also want to talk to them about health. If they're not out there pursuing porn and sex, what are they doing? Are there gay hiking clubs, gay churches, gay spiritual groups, gay theater groups, gay, you know, what are, where can someone put their time and energy into social and relationship activities to grow their identity and grow their relationships and grow their community without being sexual? And fortunately, in the last 15 or 20 years, there are a lot more environments like that for gay men and lesbians.
you have to be prepared to confront a significant amount of denial that is harder to confront than if you're seeing a straight married person. Because a gay man will default to, hey, that's just what gay men do. That's what all gay men do. This is just being a gay man. Have them read my book. I promise you, any gay man who's a sex addict who says, oh, well, this is just what men do, let him read Cruise Control. And I guarantee you, by the time he's done with the book, he will say, oh, gosh, I don't think I am like other gay men. I think I have a problem with sex. And the confusion for a gay man who's a sex addict can often be, well, being a gay man means having all this casual sex. Being a gay man means having all these anonymous partners. And that is not necessarily true. It may be true in the experimental stages for a gay man. It's not at all true when someone is relationship seeking. Another thing you have to contend with when working with gay men is a long-term committed spouse of a gay man may not be bothered by their male partner going out and having sex with a lot of people. They may not resent the fact that they have sex with other people and they're in this marital relationship. Um, Some people act out together. Both partners do. You might have two sex addicts in a relationship or you might have one who's gone along with the other just to keep him happy or there can be so many dynamics there, but it's going to be different than a heterosexual relationship. And you really need to be prepared for very open discussions about potentially non-typical therapy topics like open relationships and sex toys and threesomes and things that really are a part of gay culture in the way that they are much more underground in heterosexual culture. Um, Sexual sobriety is no different for a gay male sex addict than it is for a straight male sex addict. And we're going to have a discussion later on about sobriety. But lifestyle changes that can support a gay man, that we can talk about. Gay men need non-sexual socialization, affiliation with gay and non-gay groups, religions, teams, hobbies, recreation, up 12-step groups. Gay men need ongoing social peer support toward behavior change, just like straight men do. Gay men need education about dating, about intimacy, about communication, about relationship skill building, which they simply may not have. Gay men need increased interaction with heterosexual men, especially if they have similar issues. I really enjoy working with a mixed group of gay men and straight men because when you have a sexual problem, it's very, you know, if, if I'm cheating on my wife with 30 prostitutes a week, it's really hard for me to look at that gay guy and say, oh my God, you sleep with men? Because I have a sexual problem myself. It's really a beautiful thing when I see that straight man say, oh my God, you're just like me. And that gay man say, hey, you're not so scary. You're just like me. And I see this man, these men bond around their healing and around being men together, not necessarily around sexualization or homophobia. It's really important for me that when someone is working with a gay man, like sponsoring them or being a direct support, it's probably best that it isn't another gay man that they're attracted to. Just like I wouldn't pair a man and a woman clinically to work on their issues with each other if they were married to other people, I wouldn't pair a two gay men together to work on these issues together. I would probably pick a gay man and a straight man or a gay man and a woman because I don't want those sexual distractions when they're going out for lunch to work on an issue. I want them to be able to talk safely and comfortably. I will have to educate gay men on how to use a hookup app if that's what they're going to do how to, or to eliminate them altogether. A lot of men under the age of 30 have never gone on a date without an app. So imagine teaching someone how to ask someone out, which is increasingly an issue we have to do with young people anyway. And finally, for gay men who are sex addicts, casual sex is over. I had a colleague who said once, and I excuse my language, he said, oh, you mean no more sport fucking. That's correct. No more sport fucking if you're a gay man and you're a sex addict. No bars, no wet areas of the gym where you can act out with a bunch of nude men, no friend finder apps, none of it. Gay men who are sex addicts need to socialize, build intimate relationships, and move toward healthy relationship dependency. 
If you want more information, I highly recommend you pick up a copy of Cruise Control. I think it will help differentiate some of the details about gay sexual life that you may not be familiar with. And very briefly, before we leave this topic, we're not talking much about lesbians, but I do want to say something about them, that lesbian women frequently struggle with what you might call enmeshment or even love addiction. Some lesbian women who have emotional issues, like some of the men I work with, they just end up wandering around looking for anyone. They hook up with someone, they get enmeshed, and they live with them for five years. <laughs> they don't even know the person that well, but they found someone to glom onto, and all of a sudden they're enmeshed. And then they both gain weight and stop having sex. And we have names for this. We're not, I'm not going to use any of them. But there is a great book by a colleague of mine who wrote the urge to merge. And uh, I think that that might be a useful book for lesbians to read if they have these issues. It's a lesbian companion to cruise control is the urge to merge because lesbians too struggle more with the kind of enmeshment, kind of love addiction kind of stuff than they do with direct sex addiction. Although I will say that there certainly are women out there who are picking up women day after day after day after day and tossing them aside like a Kleenex. I think there's a lot more sex addiction in the lesbian community that we than we talk about or know about. Um, it's going to take those women standing up and asking for help in order for us to help them. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.